good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 16 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to do something that I uh, have wrestled with a little bit, but nonetheless, I think it's an opportunity for us to see the kindness of God over the last few months and years of our lives. Um, So this is the only unorthodox thing I will ever ask you to do. Uh, If you would be willing, if you began worshiping with us while we were preaching through the book of Romans, would you be willing to raise your hand? Um, the reason I ask this is because I'm constantly amazed at God's kindness. Um, I'm constantly amazed at God's kindness over years, and it's really easy to look at moments, to look at minutes and measure them. And as you look at moments and minutes and measure them, oftentimes our measurements are found wanting. But when you take years, and not just years, but a task, and you see God use it, it is an incredible evidence of grace. And so we start our last sermon in the book of Romans. We have spent two and a half, a little over, in this blessed book. I'm a little surprised by this. And at the beginning of every one of my journals that I write these sermons in, I write with the understanding that I will not be, nor will Mercy Hill be, the same as it was when we began. And this is true, not only in the lives that have been brought into this fellowship, but in the lives that have been transformed, not by mere men, but by the Word of God, washing over them week after week after week. And we we misunderstand the gravity of moments like this. And we do well to pause for just a moment and to thank God for His kindness, to thank God for what He has done in Romans 1 and 2 and all the way to the end, what has washed over our souls and what God has done through the Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. Souls were dead when we began preaching this book that now live, and not only live, but are vital members of this church that serve, that minister, and that have even led other souls to saving faith in Christ And so it is a wonderful moment. It is a gravitas moment. And it is like saying goodbye to a friend. But nonetheless, we must conclude. And so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 25, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed 
And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we come pleading that final line to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I come asking for a bit of strength and resolve in the midst of this final text, Lord, that you would by your grace, give us the ability to meditate upon these things, to celebrate them, to rejoice in them. Lord, would you help us to see Christ not as concealed, not as mystery, but wonderfully disclosed, wonderfully revealed, that we might enjoy him not in part, not in form, but in the fullness of his beauty. And so, Father, would you bless this moment uniquely? Would you use it to the praise and glory of Christ? And would you use it for the good of the church? It's the name of Jesus, and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter 16, I need to bring forward an introduction that we worked through last week. Uh, We're picking up essentially what is known as the secondary means of God strengthening his church in this particular doxology. If you look back at verse 25, it says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Last week, to simply give you a brief recap, we worked through a couple of things. Number one, we worked through our need, that we all are needy before God, that we need to be strengthened, that if we rely on our own abilities, then we will most certainly be lost, for we did not have the ability to bring ourselves into, say, faith, we most certainly do not have the ability in and of ourselves to keep us in the saving faith of Jesus Christ. And so what do we need? We need one who is able to strengthen. And we work through the concept of God's ability. And we look throughout all of redemptive history. And what hopefully was noticed that in the midst of that was the unique strength and ability, dominion and authority of our God to do all that he has designed. He has the ability, and then we examine for a brief moment that he was not only able, but he is willing. He will bring to completion the good work that he began. There is not a single sheep of the flock of Christ that will be lost. They were given to him before eternity began. Christ kept them throughout his earthly ministry, and he will present them back to the Father on the last day. What we have is a God who is able and who is willing and uses distinct means for our strengthening and for our continuation of the Christian life. And last week we looked at the gospel, and I do not want to make an unnecessary division between gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, yet I do want to isolate and focus on the proclamation of Christ as a means of strengthening. John Piper argues that the proclamation of the gospel is a means of grace. The preaching of Christ is a means of grace to the people of God, a preserving grace, a strengthening grace, something that bolsters them week to week that they might walk faithfully in this life. And I'm convinced that that is exponentially true from the study of this particular text. But before we get into the ways in which the proclamation of the gospel strengthens, and before we get into the proclamation of Christ in general— What I'd like to do is elaborate on and build out essentially what we find at the latter half of verse 25 all the way through verse 27. I'd like to read it to you again. Because it is not the preaching of Jesus Christ, it's something in accordance with a revelation. Listen to what it says. 
it says, The preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. You will notice that there is augmentation essentially to the proclamation of Christ. We are to do it in accordance with some reality. Now, we come to the proclamation of Jesus Christ understanding that we have a revealed mystery according to this text. But what I'd like to do is build out the concept of mystery. And so if I were to break the, to the major points of the sermon up into two categories, it would first be the mystery of Christ. And that's what we will deal with now. And then lastly, we will deal with the proclamation of Christ revealed. So notice what it says again in verse 25. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. What does the word mystery mean? I think that our immediate reaction is to say that it is some type of, some, some type of secret or concealment. But that is not actually first and foremost what a mystery is. As a matter of fact, it is quite clear that mystery is first and foremost a form of revelation. Apart from the God of the universe revealing to you the mystery, you would know nothing of it. You would not even know that you should be looking around. But God has in his infinite grace revealed, and one of the ways that we see him reveal, especially and specifically in the Old Testament as they were awaiting the promised Messiah, is that God revealed in mystery. He was making things known, but he was making them known in a concealed fashion up until the point that there would be a glorious unveiling. And so we say first and foremost, mystery is a form of revelation. It's communicative. It is telling us something. It is telling us that we should be paying close attention to what's happening. For instance, when we hear prophecies, particularly in passages like Isaiah, you were given a particular form. You were shown something specific, but you do not have its fine lines. You only have its outer boundaries. It is mysterious. It is mysterious in the sense that it is revelation, yet it is concealed. But every mystery implies a future unveiling, that there will be a moment where the mystery is a mystery no longer. That in his revealing, in his making known the form, the presence of something, he will one day pull the veil back and permit us to see not in part, but in whole. God has revealed through mystery. Mystery should be taken in three ways. It is revelatory, it is concealed, and there will be a future unveiling. We see mysteries all throughout the scriptures. And so the question is, what mystery are we taking into consideration in our particular text? First, it is not the mystery of Gentile inclusion, though that is in view to some degree. Gentile inclusion is mentioned in this text throughout the entirety of the book of Romans. It's made clear over and over and over again. But the text is not first and foremost making reference to the Gentiles' inclusion. Instead, it seems to be making reference to the means by which the Gentiles will be included. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Is what we are considering the future bodily resurrection that we still wait for? No. Because that actually is still mysterious in some capacity. Though we know that we will all be raised, though we know that we will all raise from the grave, and we know that we will go to be with him, we do not understand the specific mechanics of which that will occur. We simply know that in body and soul, we will dwell forever with Christ. It is still a mystery, and we await its unveiling, and in its unveiling, we will have experienced it. 
Nor is it the mystery of Revelation, such as the whore of Babylon, the seven stars of the seven churches, or of the mystery of God's appearing. We simply believe these things in faith, knowing that they have been outlined for us, and there will be a moment where apocalypsis, the veil, will be raised, and we will see in full, no longer in part. No, these are not the mysteries of which we are considering. Instead, we are considering first and foremost the mystery of Christ's person and work. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to how Paul writes this to his beloved son in the faith. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Listen to how he defines the mystery of godliness. It is not so much an activity as a man. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What mystery are we considering? We are considering the mystery of Jesus Christ, His person and His work. Most certainly we consider the gospel and the ramifications of His person and work, but we do not miss that there is a first and foremost proclamation given to the church, and it is the proclamation of Jesus Christ Himself. And so this mystery that's laid out for us is the mystery of Christ. And we live in the full light of that, saints. When you look back at the Old Testament, you are not going back to look at various forms, not knowing what actually is the fine lines and markers of his existence. You go back knowing in full. You go back with the full light, a wonderful, beautiful spotlight of the New Testament on the old. And you see in perfect picture. As they say, 2020 vision is indeed perfect. And so we look back at these things and we see them. But if we could, just for the sake of a bit of sermonic device, can we, for a moment, live in the mystery? Can we go back and consider, for just a brief moment, this mystery and what the existence of the Old Testament saints would have been as they longed for its full revelation? Because often we see this term mystery and I feel as though we do not understand the tension that existed in the anticipation and the longing of its glorious unveiling. So let's consider for a moment. While we have full light, let's consider living in the mystery. So first, how and where is the mystery revealed? Scripture in this particular text is quite clear. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings have been made known to all nations. It is first and foremost revealed to the prophets. The reason that we can go back into the Old Testament and see this mystery, this form of revelation that we await to be fully revealed is because God gave this mystery to the prophets to communicate to them so that, so that Israel might not wonder about in lost hope altogether. But instead, he was, they were reminded over and over and over again that there should be some anticipation for what's to come. So God reveals this, this mystery to the prophets that they might see them, they might communicate them. That when Isaiah pins the virgin birth, he is not just considering something that will happen quite soon. He is considering something that will happen in the not yet, but finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read Isaiah 53, like we did in our call to worship, all of our minds immediately go to the Lord Jesus Christ, for it was written of him. But if you lived in the concealed age, if you lived in the mystery, you would ask, who is he? They longed for him. God reveals this mystery not only to the prophets, but he also reveals it in shadows and types. There was a reason that the Pharisees would go along saying something along the lines of, ah, the Messiah will be like Joseph. 
They professed these things because they understood the way that the Scriptures communicated the mystery. They would be like Joseph. They would be after the pattern of Abraham. The list goes on. There will be a Davidic king and so forth and so on. They understood that the types were revelatory. Though they not see in full, they saw in part. And as they saw in part, they said, we know that we're awaiting one to fulfill. Finally, God did not only reveal these things, He had these mysteries recorded in the sacred scriptures so that we might look back on them so that Israel, as they were longing for him, might examine them. Romans 1, 2, the introduction of our book, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Or Romans 3, 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. There has always been a wonderful proclamation of this mystery. John Gill says it this way so helpfully. This is not to say in the midst of mystery, not that the mystery of Christ was entirely unknown, nor any hints given of it in those ages. For there certainly were, as to our first parents, after the fall to Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, and others, but it was but obscurely revealed. Only some dark intimations were given of it. It was exhibited in type, shadows, and sacrifices, and in the comparative sense was wrapped up in darkness and silence. This is how they looked forward. This is the mystery that they considered. And so if I were to sum it up, we could say it this way. Should we have the whole of the Old Testament writings, we would have a loud, loud witness as to who the person and works of Christ would be, but it would still be a mysteriously loud voice, a longing for clarity, a longing for precision in the midst of mystery, which leads us to ask, was this mystery understood? Did they understand, see, and perceive this mystery in full? And it seems to me like the answer is in part, but not in full, which is the primary intention of God in revealing it in the form of mystery. Listen to Hebrews eleven thirteen, a paramount chapter of scripture to tell us how we should understand the faith of Old Testament saints. Hebrews eleven thirteen. listen to this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them or greeted them from afar. If you follow the thread of Hebrews 11, you will end not in Hebrews 11, but in Hebrews 12, where it reminds us that there is one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ the Lord. It is not as though their greeting was simply a promised land. It is not as though their greeting was a particular promise to be delivered to them. The thing they greeted from afar was the Lord Jesus Christ. They longed for him And so certainly we say in part they understood, but not in the full light of day, which you can imagine what a wonderful day it was when Christ descended to proclaim liberty to the captives and they saw him in that moment and said, there he is in full light. John 8, 56, our father Abraham, did he understand in full or in part? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. This is the Lord Jesus' words. And I'm convinced that what you see here is in the revelation given to him, and particularly in the story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham saw substitutionary atonement in beautiful light. And he longed not for Isaac to be sacrificed, not for Isaac to die, but for the true promised offspring to come and lay down his life as a substitute for sin. He longed for these things. He saw Jesus' day and was glad. 
But in the midst of this, there is not only an understanding in part, but instead there is a deep longing. There is a desire to see. Matthew 13, 17 says this, For truly I say to you, many prophets and kings long to see what you see. He says this to Pharisees who are looking at Jesus in the face and denying him. And there are Old Testament saints who longed, desired deeply to see and to hear what these Pharisees are seeing and hearing. They longed desperately to see the full light of this revelation. And then perhaps the paramount text is 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. These men lived to examine shadows, not because they loved the shadows, but because they wanted to know of the substance. They wanted to know the full light as they examined, knowing that they would not see in full, but yet in part, they devoted themselves to searching and inquiring for what? inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They searched and inquired. They looked into the sufferings of this promised Messiah and his subsequent glories. They longed for this. And as they longed for this, Old Testament saints lived in expectation of his coming. And we have really three beautiful glimpses of this in the Scriptures Almost the connecting of old and new. And we see it in really three. We see it in Simeon, we see it in Anna, and we see it in John the Baptist. In the light of this mystery, they lived expectantly, longing for that full unveiling. Remember, and the way that we consider mystery is it's revelatory, it's concealed up until the point where it truly is revealed. And we have three beautiful pictures of this in the New Testament. Listen to this text from Luke 2, 25 through 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people. You know, I read verse 28. He took him up in his arms more like he snatched him up. Because Simeon is largely representative of all those in Israel that were truly Israel. Simeon had awaited. He had longed. He lived in wonderful anticipation. And the Holy Spirit of God had communicated to him that he would not perish until he saw the Lord's Christ. And what a thrill and a splendor it must have been to see him in his infancy, knowing, knowing all of the sufferings of this Christ and the subsequent glories that would come to pass, he scooped him up and blessed God the Father for the gift of God the Son. And saying, this is the moment where the unveiling begins. But it is not just Simeon who is present for this. It is also a prophetess named Anna. 
Luke 2, 36 through 38 says this, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him. Who is the him mentioned in verse 38? It's the infant Christ who she goes on to proclaim to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. She sees, he sees, but then we have a jump in time arriving at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and there is another who seemingly connects the old and the new and that is John the Baptist. When Jesus approaches John the Baptist, what is John the Baptist's profession? Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. There is a wonderful unveiling that we see, not just in Matthew 1 or in Luke 2, but instead it is throughout the entirety of the New Testament record, throughout the entirety of Jesus Christ's life, the veil is being lifted so that we might see and see rightly that this is the Christ. This is the one who has come to redeem Israel. This is the one who has come to be a light to the nations. This is the one who has come to take away the sin of the world. This is the mystery revealed. Christ is the mystery revealed. Now, how did God reveal this mystery hidden for ages? Matthew Henry beautifully puts it this way. But how is it made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets? Surely, because now the event has given the best exposition to the prophecies of the Old Testament. Being accomplished, they are explained. Because they are accomplished, because they have been filled to the brim through the work of Jesus Christ, it is an impossibility for the Christian to see this cup full, go back to the old and say, ah, it is not there. No, it has been accomplished and in its accomplishment it has been explained. But it is not just in the accomplishment that it is explained. It seems that the power of the Holy Spirit means to give light to this. I am convinced that Acts 2, one of the primary things that takes place there and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is not just the Spirit coming in power, as Joel says, though that is certainly the case. It is also the fact that the Holy Spirit, who once concealed Christ in the Old Testament, now says, look at him. He opens the eyes of the saints that they might see him. And as they see him, they go back and they say, he's been there all along. Because saints, the reality is he was concealed in the prophetic writings. Where was he revealed? In the prophetic writings. There is something monumental that takes place in the midst of Christ accomplishing redemption and simultaneously the giving of the Spirit that we might see Him and see Him in full. This is the reason we don't read Scripture like Pharisees. We have the full light of Christ. And as we have the full light of Christ accompanied with the Spirit's power, we go back and see Him there clearly, no longer in figments, no longer simply in frame, no longer believing that He is present, but knowing in full what we behold. We see Christ and him crucified. We see Christ raised. We see Christ ever live to mediate. And so he was proclaimed. And even if you took a brief moment to study Acts 2, what you will notice is the Old Testament citations are throughout all of Peter's first sermons. And what is the primary point of Peter's first sermon is that Jesus Christ is Lord. He does not use a New Testament text. As a matter of fact, he is writing New Testament text as he is proclaiming. And as he proclaims, he grabs Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference, and he says, these are of Christ, and fills them with glory and meaning afresh. So we say that Christ has been proclaimed in mystery, 
But now, saints, he is not proclaimed in mystery. He is proclaimed boldly and clearly and precisely. We do not proclaim him in mystery. We proclaim him in perfect clarity because we have been given the full light of sacred scripture. This is why verse 25 is so important. This is why our understanding of revelation and mystery and that which is disclosed is so important to our proclamation of the gospel. Listen to it yet again. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, we do not preach him in part, we preach him in whole. So what does this entail? It means that we preach of the eternal son condescending. We don't look into Isaiah and wonder who this Christ is. We know him in full. Luke is explicit. John makes it clear that he is not just the son of man, but he is the son of God. Truly God and truly man. What we see is the eternal son in eternal love, volunteering himself to condescend, take on the form of a servant and die in our stead. We had that in part, but now we have it in whole. And we preach him in whole. He is the eternal son condescended. We look at the miracle of the incarnation, that this one who lays in a manger is the king of the universe, who even though he needs his mother to nurse him, is constantly upholding the universe by the word of his power. He is truly God and truly man. And even in the midst of that, we do not have a demigod. We have one who is hypostatic in nature, constantly preserving the true Godhead and the true humanity. Further, we preach of his life of servanthood. It is impossible to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the midst, or maybe better, especially in the midst of knowing who he is in fullness and not seeing such wonderful humility, condescension, and servanthood. The concept of Jesus stooping down to wash the disciples' feet still baffles me. This Christ, the one who would sit across the well, with this woman who should, he should not have been having a conversation with at all based upon the customs of the day, and yet he humors her, proclaims the gospel to her, makes known to her the way of life. He is an infinitely clear and precise servant. We preach his preaching. In the midst of our examination, and even as we go on preaching, we do not ignore the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons we're reading through the book of Matthew is so that we can hear the words of our Lord as he preaches the good news of the kingdom. We preach his preaching. We never undermine it. Instead, we go on proclaiming, this is Christ the Lord. We preach of his covenant. When we come to the table, when you enter into this church through baptism, we preach of the covenant of Christ, that he offered not just wine at that table, but he was offering up his very blood of the new covenant. When he offers bread, he is telling you this is the means of entry. We preach Christ in fullness. We don't go back to Melchizedek and say, see bread and wine. No, we go to that wonderful new covenant table and we say, there's bread, there's wine, eat. We preach him in fullness. We preach of his betrayal that was prophesied of old. When Judas would make his way to the king of glory and betray him with that which was to convey loyalty. When he reaches in, kisses him on the cheek for the purpose of selling him for a bag of money. Zechariah made it plain to us. And we see it in full. We, we, we preach his betrayal. We preach his mockery. Isn't it interesting that as we meditate upon the king of glory, we preach him being mocked. Psalm 22 is so explicitly clear. You cannot preach it without preaching the mockery of Christ. You cannot preach through the passion narrative without preaching the mockery of Christ. That the world mocked him, hate him, spat upon him, pulled out his beard. He was mocked. A great demonstration of truly what man does when God is in his hand. 
God-haters demonstrated in the midst of their mockery of the Lord of glory. We preach of his lacerated back. Scripture is clear. He gave his back for beating and he bled for us. We preach of his nails. Isaiah 53 makes it clear that he was pierced for our transgressions. But in the full light of the New Testament, we know that he was pierced through with iron nails, nailing him to a tree where he would cancel the record of debt. We preach a pierced Christ. Further, we preach of his parched lips as he is on that cross and says, utters those horribly dark words, I thirst. Knowing that as he utters these words, he is actively drinking the cup of God's wrath. And if I could maybe go back to the covenant that he made, in the midst of him drinking the cup of God's wrath, he has given us a cup of blessing. He cries, I thirst, so that we might never suffer the anguish that inspired such words. We do not thirst in Christ's kingdom. We have fountains of living water flowing from us because of the Spirit. We preach his parched lips and we preach his cries. We preach it is finished. And we preach it with absolute certainty. When Old Testament saints looked and saw the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, they saw glimpses of that glory. We say it is finished. It is completed. He has accomplished the work. We preach Christ cries. It is finished. We preach of his hours of darkness when all of the sin of all the elect of God were laid upon his shoulders and he was our sin bearer. Saints, there was no mercy or grace for the eternal son in those hours. It was wrath and all wrath, justice and all justice. God sheathed his sword in the side of Christ. He was the sin bearer in those hours of darkness and we preach his death. Isn't it interesting that we preach his death triumphantly? We are the only fools that get to go out preaching of the death of our king. And though we be foolish, it is the power of God unto salvation. And so we go forth preaching. We preach of his death. We preached of his pierced side from which water and blood flowed to make certain that this blessed Savior was truly dead. And I am convinced even testifying to his means of redemption of water and blood. We preach his burial, understanding that when he was buried, he removed sin as far as the east is from the west. He expiated them. He took them outside of the camp. Saint, we preach Christ in fullness means that when we preach his burial, we rest comfortably knowing that our sins will never be brought before, before the judge ever again. He has paid them in full. They have been removed. They have been expiated, cast out. And we preach his resurrection. We preach his resurrection, those subsequent glories that the Old Testament saints looked into, searched and inquired carefully. We have in full array. We understand in high definition the nature of his resurrection from the dead. That he was not dead a moment. That he did not swoon on the cross. Instead, he died. He drew his last breath. And three days later, he rose conquering death. Sin and death defeated. It is absolutely cast out and destroyed. It has no power or authority or dominion. And Satan has no power to, to lay slavery of fear to us any longer. He has delivered through his death, burial, and resurrection. We preach of his ascension, saints. He is seated now at the right hand of the Father. He has never left this station, this wonderful station that it is not just him ascending, but it is him sitting, interceding for us. The wonderful nature of his ascension is that we have a mediator before the Father eternally. 
He is forever the perfect mediator. He lives there to mediate for us. We preach of his return. We preach with meditation upon the future life, that he will come for us, that he will take us with him into glory, that these old bodies will be done away with and we will be glorified, made new. Sin done away with forever. No longer will the inner man tempt you, but instead you will be given to wholly serve and honor your king. And then we preach of the new heavens and the new earth that he has ushered in. What a wonderful world of love that we should be meditating upon. That he will bring us there. That as he came to us, he will bring us to him. So we preach of this new heavens and new earth, perfect paradise for the saints of God to dwell forever in his light. The warm rays of his light ever shining forth on our skin. In short, we echo Paul in Colossians. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Him we proclaim, not in obscurity, not in mystery, but in the full light of revelation because of it being complete and because of the Spirit's effect in our souls to see it and to behold it rightly. So we preach him according the revealing of mystery. And hear me, saints, the danger of this, and I am convinced it is a true danger, is that we like to go back to the mystery. I will not go with you back to the mystery. And I would implore you, do not go back to the mystery. We have whole hermeneutical structures that intend to cloud our eyes for the sake of mystery. I will not go back to mystery. Because mystery means that I am veiled. Mystery means that I do not see appropriately, that I am not enjoying new covenant promises. Can I read to you a text? 2 Corinthians 3, 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Can I ask a brief question? Is this text telling us that we should never read or study Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers? By no means. What is, how are we to read and understand Moses? Listen to what verse 16 says. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. We do not go back and read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or the rest of the Old Testament with a veil over our eyes. We go back unveiled. We go back understanding the true glory of Christ. We go back understanding what our Lord taught after his resurrection. Really two very distinct yet quite important texts. Luke 24, 27, he says this, And beginning, this is our Lord on the road to Emmaus, he's clarifying, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When I go back to Moses and to the prophets and to the Psalms, I do not go back like the Pharisee. I go back as one whose veil is lifted based upon the glory of Christ. I go back looking for the Savior because he is clearly there. Jesus believed he was there and even exposited himself on the road to Emmaus. Or again, Luke 24, 44. Everything about me in the law and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Listen to this beautiful text. Then he opened their minds to the understanding of the scriptures. This is a gift of our great God and King, that we do not have a New Testament that is distinctly Christian. We have a Bible that is distinctly Christian. 
It is not a predominantly Jewish text. It is a predominantly Christian text. We go to the scriptures old and new alike because in them Christ is revealed. Yes, at one point he was concealed, a mystery, but that is long past. We go back in the full light of the gospel. We go back understanding the clear teaching. This means that when we read of Adam, we read of Adam as a federal head, but we understand that Christ is the federal head of life. It means that when we go back and we see Isaac, we say, ah, yes, Isaac was a promised offspring. Jesus is the promised offspring. It means that when we see Moses, we say Moses is a prophet and a great one, but Christ is the prophet. When we consider the Levites, we say, ah, yes, the Levites were a priesthood, but we have the faithful high priest. When we see David, we say David was a mighty king, but we say Christ is the king of kings. We understand these things, not in shadows, but in their substance. They testify to the eternal glory of the beloved son, which leads us perhaps to the rather simple question, why do we preach Christ? First, we preach him because we are commanded by the eternal God. Listen to what verse 26 says. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings have been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. We preach him because we are commanded to preach him. But that command is somewhat like commanding me to go home and love my wife. I want to. In the midst of all of the glory of the scriptures, how can I do anything but obey this commandment? In light of all the glory, simply for the sake of joy. I mean, sincerely for a moment, imagine the folly of this. Throughout all of redemptive history, there have been men who stood and preached. And they preached the same thing year after year after year. I am not the first pastor to touch Romans. I am quite literally the last today. But nonetheless, for joy, this word has been ever constantly preached and proclaimed. Because the joy that is found in it is Christ himself The completion of joy, as John would understand and even introduce his first epistle in, is that your joy might be complete, that my joy might be complete in the testimony, in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Saints, if you've intaken him, if you've beheld him, if you've seen him as glorious and wonderful and beautiful, you can be silent? Really? In the midst of all of the glory of the gospel, you can just sit there on your hands and not go forth preaching and proclaiming? I know of no human being like this, much less a Christian. Christians who see the glory of Jesus go on preaching because they are commanded, but then secondarily, because we have a great joy in Him. And the privilege of those who take joy is to share their joy with others. Make Christ known. It matters not if they receive or deny. I have the privilege of preaching him. So we preach Christ because he is commanded. But we also preach Christ for our own joy, for our own thrill, for our own privilege and pleasure. Now, to whom do we preach Christ? Listen to what it says again in verse 26. But has now been disclosed into the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. Now consider this in its common in its context. This is saying that I do not go to Jew only. Romans 3 says, "Ah, oh, what blessing the Jews had, the oracles of God were delivered to them." Saints, the oracles of God were delivered to all the church. 
They belong to us. He is our message. He is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. We go on preaching, not just to Jew, but to Gentile, to all the nations. There is no one exempt from the proclamation of the gospel. And there should be nowhere someone can hide from our proclamation of it. Because we love the gospel of Christ. We love Jesus, want to make him known. We preach him to the nations. Now, if we could get back to the primary means of our text. Verse 25 again. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the question, why does the proclamation of Jesus Christ strengthen God's people? This is a list that is largely inexhaustible, but I will give you a few. How does the preaching of Jesus Christ strengthen his church? I would simply argue that it is the ever constant setting out of Christ before his people. But let me give you a few ways that we do this. We preach Christ because he is the groom of the church who loves her. Because in the midst of the proclamation of Jesus Christ, it is almost impossible for those who have been born again and brought into that family to not be wooed by the fact that he has made himself the groom of that bride. That we do look back and examine Hosea and Gomer and we wonder how in the world Hosea would continue to pursue Gomer. It was based upon the command of God. How much more so does the infinitely kind, merciful, gracious God continue to pursue an unfaithful bride? And yet he does. And in the midst of understanding that he is our groom, we are reminded that he is faithful even when we are faithless. That he continues to pursue, he continues to strengthen, he continues even to woo us. Because he is the savior of the church who he bought with his blood. How does it strengthen? Ever constantly, the setting forth of Jesus Christ is the setting forth of his blood. We are, without question and apology, a people who rejoice in the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. We go all the way back to the Old Testament and we see again, not in part, but in full. We see the day of atonement and the concept that they would be cleansed for a year of their sin. When we preach Christ, we do not preach a cleansing for the year. We preach a cleansing even to the conscience that a once for all sacrifice delivered us from death and sin and brought us into the household of faith. We preach Christ's blood. And as we preach his blood, we are reminded of the all-sufficiency of that blood. And we are strengthened. We are made more whole as we consider the forgiveness of sins that is wrought there. Because he is the Lord of the church. Because saints, we have a king. We need to be reminded of our king. We need to be reminded that he is not weak and frail. No, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of glory. We profess, as we just mentioned, that he is the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. But we also gladly, loudly proclaim he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He rules and he reigns. And oh, what great comfort I take under his scepter. I need not fret the Lord, the king of the church, is ruling and reigning over us. Or because the unity of the church is found in him. We have spent ample time working through Romans 12. And hear me, if you do not have Christ as your strength, you will fail in every objective of Romans 12. You will not rejoice with those who rejoice. You will not be united with people. You will think more highly of yourself than you ought. It is an impossibility. But if you understand Christ is the anchor point and source of unity, then all of a sudden a new desire to pursue that unity erupts within your soul because it is to the praise, glory, and honor of the Christ who is our unity. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. And we gladly say we will submit to our head, finally, because he is the end of the church. And I do not mean to say that he is the 
the, the, the final moment. I'm saying that he is the conclusion. Meaning that all of the acts of redemption, all of the way that he has preserved and strengthened the church is so that Christ might be glorified. Now you ask, how does this strengthen? It strengthens because God loves his glory. The reason it strengthens is because I know that in the full light of Scripture, that he has attached his namesake to the church, that he has attached his namesake to you, saint, if you be in him. And one of the greatest comforts of the gospel to me and one of the greatest comforts of Jesus Christ is he is jealous. Saints, he is jealous for his glory, which means he is jealous for his church. The end of the church is the glory of Christ. He will not suffer her to fall. Nothing will prevail against her. As a matter of fact, it is quite clear. It is the reason that we use terminology like the church triumphant. The church is triumphant, not because the church bears its own strength, because it is born up under the Savior. It is strengthened. It is maintained. It is made all the more able to continue its plotting. And if I could conclude it maybe this way, understanding each of these means, each of these truths of Christ grants the church strength as we plod toward him. Because saint, we are not plodding toward something. We are plotting toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that he is both the starting point and the prize at the end of the race. He is the one whom we long for. And as we see him, as we behold him, as we delight in him and see him as all glorious, that our legs are strengthened, that we might continue plodding toward Christ our Lord. This is why we preach him. This is why it strengthens the church. And I pray, pray that through, over, that, that through the last two and a half, three years, that you have been strengthened to ply toward your king. That you have been made all the more able to obey him, not because you are aiming for righteousness, but because you love the one who provided it. And perhaps, no, clearly, the best way to end this is to simply read verse 27 and be reminded that this is the end to which we preach. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.